Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is Matthew 27, 45 through 56. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Check. Oh, hey, good morning. Everybody doing good? All right. Um, you did that. That was, that was a habit. I always walk over there. Um, okay. Do me a favor. Stand with me. We're going to start off today with the Shema. It goes right along with what, uh, what, what we're talking about today with the cries of the people, what they were. Um, The Shema is the ancient Israelite prayer that they would pray regularly. Um, It was amended by Jesus to sort of point at something different. Um, And the Christians prayed it three times a day, out loud, every day, with meaning and with fervor and with passion. And being Christians ourselves, uh, I think we should carry on this tradition. So do me a favor. Um, You're going to say this nice and loud with me. The first part is Hebrew. You're going to repeat after me. And then the whole part in English we're going to do together, shall we? So repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Adonai Echad. You can do a little louder as we do this next part together. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I want to sort of put you in the scene of what we have been reading. Matthew's audience was in the scene. Um, Matthew's letter was compiled, written sometime not long after, uh, probably around 90 maybe. Um, uh, Maybe before that, but after AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. However, they would have remembered what this was like. They would have remembered the Passover. Um, They would have remembered um, possibly even the very year that Jesus was crucified. Some of them may have been there. There were, according to Josephus, over 2 million Jews in the city that particular year because of the way all the festivals came together at one time. And they were sort of rapid-fire festivals one day after another after another. Um, And so I want to sort of put you there, um, entering into the city of Jerusalem at uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, there were two sacrifices every single day for all of Israel's history. As long as they had a tabernacle and a temple, they offered these sacrifices. At 9 o'clock in the morning and at 3, in the clock, at three o'clock in the afternoon. At 9 o'clock in the morning, they would be walking in towards the city 
um, through the main gates, um, heading straight towards the temple where the sacrifices would be offered um, to keep them sort of in line as God's people, to justify them and say, this is who we are. Um, We call out uh, for a different king and we follow a different king than the world is following. At nine o'clock is the exact same time that Jesus is being crucified. The exact same time behind them outside the city gates up on the hill that they called Skull Hill. Um, as they're walking into the city through the gates, they would eventually come to something that looks like this. This is a small version of the altar that was in Jerusalem. The one in Jerusalem in the temple may have been very, very big. It may have been 15 feet tall with stairs heading up onto it where the, the priest would be standing with the sacrificial lamb. Um, and he would be standing there as they entered in. He'd be sort of looking at them all, holding this lamb bracing it tightly with a, with a dagger in one hand and just sort of looking at the people and allowing the people to see it, the representation um, of their sacrifice, of, uh, of their sins and what would happen. Um, and as they're walking into the city, they would see this and then they would look up past the altar and they would see um, another, another priest standing on the corner of, of the high place um, and that priest would be standing there with a shofar. A shofar is a large trumpet made out of uh, ram's horn. Um, and he would, at some point when it was time to do the sacrifices, he would blow like a trumpet into the shofar and make this blasting trumpeting sound that would be startling and incredibly loud and everyone in the city would hear it. Um, beyond this, over in the priest's chambers, there would have been another priest whom he could see who would be sitting at a table with an hourglass that was counting the time coming. And he would have flipped it over and it would be counting down, heading towards nine o'clock. And Jesus is being led out of the hill. um, And he's now being sort of fastened onto a piece of wood at the top of of Skull Hill. Um, And right as the last piece of sand falls, the priest inside that room gives the signal to the man, to the priest standing on the high place who blasts the shofar, which tells all the people to look at the sacrificial lamb, at the priest on the altar who slits the throat of the animal and the blood begins to run out onto the troughs that sort of carry it off the edge of the altar and it runs down the altar. And when he slits the throat of this animal, all the Jewish people would start crying out and screaming out, God, save us. Send your Messiah. Get these Romans off of our backs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? They would be crying out. Um, Singing the songs of Psalm 22, of David, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, um, calling out for their oppressors to be overthrown, for their land to be given back, um, for all of their sins to be put behind them so they could enter once again into their sort of Eden-like state with God um, and be the people that they were called to be in the world. Send us your Messiah, your King, your Davidic King in the line of David who would lead us and and the entire world into peace who would allow us to be a blessing to the world around us. And this is what they're calling out for as the blood is pouring out of this lamb. And the second the blood stops flowing, the priest will give some signal, maybe holding the dagger up to let the people know the sacrifice has been offered and the people fall silent, absolutely deathly silent. Mark tells us that at nine o'clock, when the shofar is being blown, and the throat of the lamb is being slit. Jesus is up on the hill while the people start crying out for salvation and calling for God to send a savior and a Messiah and to do the thing that he would finally do that would set the worlds to rights. 
Jesus, at this point, is crucified. And the nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he's raised up and strung on the, on the main pillar underneath a sign that says, King of the Jews, and he's wearing a crown of thorns, and the blood is running down him while all the people are on the other hill screaming out, calling out for a savior, that God would do something to rescue the world from the path that it's heading down. The same cry that we cry today when we wake up and realize that two mass shootings have happened in the last 24 hours and we don't feel like we have any words and we're calling out for God for some kind of answer. Do something to make it right as if he hasn't already shown us. And Jesus is suffering on top of the hill. And then once the blood pours out, the people fall silent. Um, By the way, this is Skull Hill. Over here you can see sort of what's left of the face of Golgotha, of the Skull Hill where Jesus is crucified. And I'll point this out to you because as the people are falling silent, as the blood begins to, as the blood ceases to flow and the animal dies and it's breathing its last breath and the people are calling out, two things are said from the cross from on top of this hill. Um, that apparently people heard, that apparently were a big deal. Um, this is what I'm going to focus on today. These, these two lines, these two last phrases that Jesus spoke from the cross. Um, the first one comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. It says, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has to transpose it into sort of Greek and then into English now because he's, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. And he wants you to hear what he said because some of the people think that maybe he's calling out for Elijah because they don't speak Aramaic in that area. And Jesus taught in Aramaic. Um, so we see right here, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Remember, the first sacrifice when Jesus is crucified happens exactly at nine o'clock. The people are calling out for a savior that God would do his thing and set the world to rights and then Jesus is hung on the cross and begins to bleed as the people call out. At three o'clock, there's another sacrifice being offered and all the people are coming back into the city again and they're gathering and the, the sand falls and the hourglass and the signal is given and the shofar blasts out and the man slits, the priest slits the throat of the other animal later on, the three o'clock animal, and the blood begins to pour out and everyone in unison begins to call out the words of David, the words of exile. Father, set the world to rights. Save us, rescue us. Jesus calls out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking part in the festivities while he's on that cross. And Jesus was not the only one calling out this phrase that day. Psalm 22 was, was something that they would cry out because it's the words of David. I want to look at Psalm 22 for a second here because Psalm 22 is vital to our understanding of what is happening here. Um, Everyone knew the Messiah, when the Messiah came, was going to be a descendant of David, would have David's blood flowing in his veins. Um, And so it had to be someone of Davidic descent. Matthew starts off his entire book over here by pointing out in Jesus' genealogy leading straight back to David. And then he does this very Jewish sort of numbers game. It's called a grammatrion. In, and I talked about this in my very first sermon, I think, in Matthew, like 20 years ago, um, where Jesus kind of, kind of lays out and says, look, here's sort of a math equation that you can look at and you count the Hebrew letters, and it spells out the name David, D-V-D. No, no vowels in Hebrew. Um, D-V-D, like 
It spells out his name in, as a grammatrian, in the, in the genealogy. And then he references David like seven more times in that chapter, as if to say, um, this is the descendant of David, and you have to see how connected he is to David, how like David he is. Um, and then throughout the story of Matthew, you're going to see people calling out saying, son of David, heal us. Son of David, listen to us. Son of David, come to us. Everyone's calling him son of David. Matthew wants people to see this. Why? David was the greatest king Israel ever had, and they knew the next king that they had, the great Messiah, would be not just a descendant of David, but would be like David and better than David, because this David would usher in, would sit on the throne and usher in world peace and would unite the entire world under, in, in absolute peace in a way that it has never been done before. And actually, as you read through Psalm 22, the thing that they would always call out for, what you begin to see is the story that Matthew puts out of Jesus. Look at this. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Um, I put references to Matthew and some of the other gospels in some of these because I want you to check those out, and you can see, like, this is exactly what is happening while Jesus is hanging on the cross. People are literally calling out saying, he trusts in God, let God rescue him. Let, let, let just let God do this. He's calling out. You go a little farther and you see um, in verse 14 in, of, of Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. It's sort of this reference to the, the water and the blood that would flow from the side of Jesus. Um, my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of, in the dust of death. Um, and Jesus calls out in the passage, he says, uh, he says I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm, I'm dying of thirst. And they give him something to drink. And you go a little farther down to verse 16. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. A direct reference to what the soldiers were doing with the, with the garments that they had pulled off Jesus before they strung him up naked on the cross. And they're there as he's watching Uh, gambling for his clothes. So as the Jewish people are entering into the city of Jerusalem, they pass by Skull Hill. And it's like they walked into, like, if you're like a big Shakespeare fan and you walked into like a room where like literally everyone is doing exactly a scene from Shakespeare, you're going to look at it and be like, wait a minute, I I have seen this. What, what am I looking at? Or like your favorite movie, whatever it is. And it's sort of like these people are walking right through the scene of Psalm 22. And they see their king with a crown on his head and a placard above him with the title of David, King of the Jews. Um, and all of this playing out and David's blood flowing through his veins and David's words on his lips. And they walk right by and they head down to the temple and they beg for another savior. Father, send us a savior. Send us someone who will do all of the things in the way that we desire them to be done. God's people have always been really good at looking at what God has given us us and rejecting it and demanding our own way, our own Savior. Jesus is the king that we've been given. But he's not this strong, powerful warrior God like we want, like we vote for, like we desire rule our nations. He is a man who has been stripped naked and bears shame, who has insults hurled at him, who has been beaten, his his beard, his masculinity ripped out. 
He is one who is nonviolent. And the people chose a violent insurrectionist over Jesus. And they are given a savior and they're like, put him on the cross. We want this other guy. And then they walk right by their Messiah and they demand a different one. But there is no other Messiah. There is no other plan. This is the path forward. This is what God has given us. The church is God's rescue plan. This is all we've been given. Jesus embodied in this world, nonviolent, forgiving, long-suffering, patient, and faithful to the people around us. And this is the plan that God has for the world, that through us, this surrogate family would grow and grow and grow because of our love and our forgiveness and our mercy. And the people would be bound together and willingly come to the feet of Jesus and say, I I join you. This is my king as well. This is what we've been given. But it's not enough for us. We want some other government, some other nation, some other king. No king but Jesus. No Lord but Jesus. And there's one other thing that the people hear as the blood is being poured out from the lamb, as they're calling out for salvation, and then the dagger finally is held still, and the animal is dead, and silence falls upon the people. And Matthew says this, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus said, but John does. John tells us, it says, it says Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the people are calling out, send us a savior. Send, bring the world together under one king and bring us world peace. And they fall silent. And from the hill behind them, they hear, it's finished. That's what they hear. Jesus is telling them, this is today in your hearing, this is happening. He's saying, this is the way. Take up your cross and follow me. Stop playing religion. Stop playing around in all of this. Now, Matthew tells us three things happened the moment Jesus died. Okay? Um, One of them is super weird, and we're going to talk about it next week. (laughs) Dead people coming up out of the ground and walking into Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that next week. Okay? I just don't have time right now. We're going to talk about the first one and the last one. So we're going to say, Matthew says two things happened. Okay? Don't worry about it. Um, the first thing that he says happened, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. Okay? Um, this is definitely like a reference, like an ancient sort of throwback to Isaiah's. Um, Isaiah's sort of, the earth um, groans in anticipation that human beings would 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 once again be glorified. To the, this basically means would be put back in the place they were always supposed to be. Under God, over creation, guiding the whole thing forward. Not fallen and become just like the rest of creation. Um, Adam and Adama, if you were here at our reasoning series on Tuesday on evolution, which by the way, the audio got corrupted and it's gone. I'm going to re-record it. I'm going to make another one. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, we'll make another one. Um, Adam is pulled up from the Adama. Adama is the ancient Israel, uh, Hebrew word for, for earth, and Adam is raised out of the Adama. Okay? The idea is you are raised above 
um, creation, given a special place. In the same way, Israel was raised above the other nations and given a special place under God and over the world. Um, And when the earth shakes, there's sort of this throwback idea to like Isaiah, the earth is waiting for that. All of creation is waiting and groaning for this to take place. Now, um, there was this veil that separated the Holy of Holies from like sort of the the temple of um, the, 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 the sanctum of where the priests would clean themselves up and where they would meet and all this. And Matthew says that this veil was rent um, from top to bottom. Now, um, if you read ancient Jewish sort of literature from um, first few centuries, you're going to see a few things. You're going to see a reference to an earthquake. You're going to see a reference to the gates swinging open on their own, the gates being sort of the giant doors of the Holy of Holies there, the central holy place, that these doors swung open, doors that were massive, that took like three people to open, um, and it says that they, they, they opened. Josephus makes a reference to this, and he says it's sort of like something large pushed on them, and I would assume maybe a veil, a giant massive curtain falling and leaning on it, all of this. Um, so there is some historical sort of reference to some of this um, and to what is happening here. Um, so for Matthew's audience, though, this is not about sort of literal science and history and all that. This, is, this, is, this has incredible meaning for them. Um, and to understand the meaning of what, this, of what this is, you have to understand how the temple is set up. So here, here's a little graph for you. Um, center box there would be the Holy of Holies, and that little sort of rectangle there is sort of the, the sanctum of, like, the priests. Now, um, outside, so very outside of the whole thing uh, is for non-Jewish and non-Gentile people, like people that don't, un, don't worship Yahweh, okay? Um, if you are, however, a God-fearer, if you read that word in scriptures, it means it, it's a Gentile who converted to Judaism, who worships Yahweh as, as the only God, um, who, is, who is practicing monotheism, um, but who has not gone all the way to Judaism in the sense of going permanent and experiencing circumcision. So, um, sort of like, I'm not ready to commit yet kind of thing, right? Um, I get it. And then, uh, and so they, they're allowed to go here. Now, they can go anywhere around there. But there's a door right here that leads into sort of this big um, plus sign area. That is what's called the court of the women. Now, the reason the Gentiles aren't allowed to go into the area where the Jewish people are is because the, the description uh, is basically um, they miss the mark. They're not raised above. They're not God's people. Uh, it's the word hamartia, which means sin. Like there's they're sin that separates them from the others. Um, and this is how they would speak of it. It's, there's a sense of impurity. You're not God's people. Um, our sins you should sort of separate you. It's not sins in the sense that like you did something to offend us. It's like sin is an archery phrase, which means I have missed the mark, not what I, sh- not what I could be. Okay? So they are limited to this area, but they can worship God there. And then if you go a little farther, this is the court of the women. Um, and again, the men in a patriarchal society would say um, they're not fully there of what men are. So... Hamartia, again, uh, there's some sin that separates us as well. They can dwell here. And then in all of these things, there is, in these four quadrants here, there is um, different chambers. You have the court of the lepers, the court of the Nazarites, uh, and different things that separate all these people based upon status, privilege, gender, race, nationality, um, 
physical ailments, bodily ailments, and you go a little farther up here, the men, the Jewish men can go there, and then that little room at the top, uh, the rectangle room is the room where the priest can go, and so there's these different levels of sinfulness and impurity and, and races, that they're not, there's just not, they're not equal. Sin has separated all of them, is how they sort of practice all of this. However, when we when we read about the, the veil being torn and separated and the doors sort of being opened, you be, Josephus says, like, you could see into the temple. When, when this happens, Matthew's audience understands exactly what this means. This means that now there is no more separation between any of us. That Jesus has forgiven and removed the sins that separate us, not just from God, but from our, each other. And we are reconciled. And everyone is now one people. And there is no, no longer this privileged class and this privileged race. And all of this comes to an end the moment Jesus dies, after he cries out, it's finished. It's over. It's done. When we say that Jesus' death removed the sins of the world... What, we, what you're saying is that the, it's the divisions, not just be, between God and us, but the divisions between God's people everywhere, between everyone else. Um, let's look at, and so there's a, way that, there's a way that Matthew kind of shows this. There's this progression. So the, the veil is, is torn, and now everyone has access to the same thing, and right away, this happens. When the centurion and those with him were, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, you have to understand the weight of this. Um, this is a Roman centurion. Son of God was a phrase that the Romans used for Caesar Augustus, who was declared the son of God after um, Caesar Augustus's father died um, and a comet was apparently flying through. And his son stands up and says, that is my father ascending to the throne. I am his son. I am the son of God. I am now king. Incarnate in this world in front of you. This was a Greek way of saying king, divine king. And so you have a centurion who has been oppressing the Jewish people, who's come from a very long ways away just to oppress these people and kill these Jews. And he's standing there and the veil is rent and the first thing that happens is a Gentile who is racially excluded confesses Jesus as God, as king. For Matthew's audience, I want you to sort of to ponder this. Instantly, this Roman Gentile oppressor makes this proclamation as if to say, this year's sacrifice is different. God has taken away all the sins all of the sins this time. And here is the proof. This is what Matthew's doing. Here's the proof that all the separations are gone. A Roman Gentile who has persecuted you professes your king. So we need to talk about this. How does Jesus accomplish all of this on the cross? How does the death of Jesus accomplish salvation? How does it set us free? What exactly happens? Because this is a very sort of nebulous idea. A lot of a lot of Christians sort of struggle with and, and, and try to wrap their minds around. Here's a few things I would state. Um, well, and before I get going on any of this, um, 
There are a lot of ways to talk about the death of Christ. There are a lot of ways to talk about the atonement. Um, Paul himself gives sort of four different atonement theories in Romans sort of back to back, okay? Um, And we're going to talk about that when we get to the book of Romans. However, I would start by saying this. On the cross, Jesus has exposed sin. And here's what I mean. He is betrayed by his own disciples. So his closest companions, he exposes their sin. Everyone sees it. Um, And then he's taken to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. And he exposes their sin, who took part in a plot to kill him. So they have blood money on their hands. Then they send him to Pilate. Where, his, where Pilate sins and the sins of the empire are sort of exposed when they are forced to sort of kill this man who they know and admit is innocent. Then Jesus stands next to a revolutionary, a violent revolutionary insurrectionist, and the people of God declare, we'd rather have him than nonviolent Jesus. And Jesus has exposed the sin of every single one of them. And as he's hanging there, it's as if he's saying, you know I'm innocent. Look what you have done. Look at this. Behold, the sins of the people upon my shoulders. And while he's hanging there, he forgives them. and says, you have all sinned gravely. And I fully forgive all of you. This is the first way that that Jesus has freed us from the sins that beset us. Then, what you have is, with everybody's sins exposed, what you find at the foot of the cross is complete and utter equality. Absolute equality. And that that is solidified when the veil is rent and the Gentile becomes a follower of Jesus, right, right before the Jewish followers of Jesus. Um, it's, it's hard to overemphasize how difficult it was for the early Jewish Christian church to accept Gentiles. It was very difficult. They had been a chosen people who had been impoverished and fought their way to their own land for a very, very long time. They had been oppressed by every single nation in the world. And it's really hard to imagine how when they finally come and they receive their king and their Messiah, the Messiah looks at them and says, and by the way, all these people that have hated you and oppressed you, they, they are going to be brought into Israel with you under me. And the problems that this caused are astronomical because, because they struggled with racism. They struggled with classism. They struggled with xenophobia and, and, and allowing and forgiving these people who had hurt them. And it's funny, um, more often than not, we really want to make the death of Jesus solely theological so that we can sort of avoid it becoming tangible. We talk about the death of Christ in ways that are sort of nebulous or sort of out here around us, but they're not tangible. They are, it's always like, it's always sort of internal or spiritual out there. But the way Matthew is describing the death of Christ on the cross and what happens, it's incredibly tangible. It is the unification of all these people who had been separated by the sins that separated them. And it's sort of like all these walls had come down. We like it that the effects of the cross are unseen and happen sort of inside us and and far away from us. But that's not what's happening here. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus is speaking to you about the way you separate yourselves from other people and why. 
The crucifixion is directly speaking to this about how you view yourself. Are you part of the in crowd and they are part of the out crowd and you're hanging curtains to separate yourself. You're like you can worship from out there, but you can't come in here and worship. And every time we do this, God is sending earthquakes to tear these curtains down and saying, no, that's finished. It's over. Your enemy, the person that you hate, God is making them your brother and your sister. That person who has absolutely hurt you and tormented you, that tribe of people that murdered your family, God is making them your brother and sister. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one over everyone. God is bringing the world together under King Jesus. That is what God is doing. Whether you like it or not, and we don't, we don't like it because there's a lot of hate in us. And this hate is stoked regularly inside of us by the people around us. And we listen to it and we let it grow. Jesus always has a surprise for us when we turn around and find that the one we hate because they're our oppressor or our ethnic enemy is being moved to worship our king. And they're walking in and they're, and they're sitting down next to you and saying, surely this is the son of God. And they look at you and all you can think is, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you know what your people have done to my people? And Jesus is out on the mountain in the background saying, it's finished. It's over. This is why when you read, and, okay, pet peeve of mine when people read books like Romans and they take one little verse and remove it from, from everything else. So we like Romans 3.23 a lot. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we rarely read the verse before it that sets the tone. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not an ethereal spiritual verse. This is a verse about racial reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. This verse is for us as well. All have sinned. You are just as guilty. Whatever it is that you have against them, when you sit in judgment, Romans 2, when you sit in judgment over them, you find yourself just as guilty. And Paul says it again in another favorite, Romans 10, let's read 13. Um, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say it like it's, again, an ethereal, faraway thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the reason Paul says this is because they're struggling in their church. There are, there are Roman Gentiles and there are, there are devout Jewish people. And they're trying to worship together, but they kind of hate each other. And these Jews think these guys are terrible liberals. And these, and these Gentiles think these guys are terrible fundamentalists. And they hate each other. And they want to go start other churches. And Paul says, the same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What he's doing is bringing different people together who would never come together and uniting them under King Jesus and saying the way to find unity is not the Roman way by conquering each other and making each other assimilate to our ideas. The way Christian unity works is by grace. I don't agree with you, but I love you. Let's take communion and I will show you grace and we will worship together. That is Paul's great solution because Paul understands Jesus. I 
I want to end where all of this sort of began. Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22 from top to bottom, it doesn't just start where Jesus was being crucified. It ends with the final message in Psalm 22. Here's, here's the last lines of it. In verse 27. All the ends of the earth will, will remember and will turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It's this incredible picture of the unity that Jesus is offering the world and the peace that he's bringing. When we submit to each other and we create seat at the table for people who are not like us, whom we have a hard time with, and we look at them and we say, because of what Christ has done for me and accepting me and the veil has been torn, I am, a, I, I am worshiping Jesus with you. And guys, there is, no, there is no good reason to separate ourselves from other people. There's not. That work is done and it's finished. The temple doesn't exist anymore. We are the temple of God when we come together. That's what Paul says. We are the temple of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. Next week, we're going to talk about resurrection, the great hope of the world. Now, uh, we're going to take communion now. Our communion service, you guys can go take the elements and spread around the room. Um, We're not going to sing a song today when we're done. We're going to take communal communion. At the, at, at the risk of sounding redundant. Communal communion, okay? Um, here's what we're going to do. Um, our communion servers are going to spread around the room, and we've done this before. I want every single person to take communion with somebody else or in a group or two, three, four, five, thirty. 30, I don't care, people together. And in unison, you look at each other, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Look each other in the eye and mean it, and you introverts are freaking out right now. <laughs> so glad you're here. We'll probably never see you again. Totally fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> but this is, what, this is what needs to happen. Because the message that is putting, being put upon us is that all of the sins that divide us are, are, are based upon other people, and it's their fault. And it's racial and it's cultural and it's this and it's that. And, and Jesus is on the hill behind us yelling out, no, 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 no. That's all finished. That's all done. I am your God and I am their God. They are your brother and sister. And so as an expression of the church, we are going to take communion together this morning. And it should be lively and joyful. If you see someone trying to take communion by themselves, tap them on the shoulder and go like this. And then take a piece and you look him in the eye and say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And add to that whatever you want and then eat it. And if you need to hug it out, hug it out, okay? This is how communion works. Everyone is fed. Everyone is seen. Everyone is heard. Everyone is blessed. And so let's pray and take communion and take your time and leave whenever you're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people come before you. We confess our separations. We confess that we have proclaimed sin upon other people and said that they are not worthy. We have, we have looked at people who are not like us and said um, they are less than. We confess these things. We let them go. We hear you when you tell us that those things, those separations are finished and they are done. 
We ask that you would help us to see the image of God in every single human being that we pass by on the streets today, that we would seek to reconcile all of the things that are torn apart, that we would seek to fix the things that are broken. We understand we are the rescue operation that you have sent, that your spirit is here among us, guiding us. We understand we are your body, and when the world looks at us, they should see you. And so for all of the ways that is not true, we repent. Thank you for breaking your body for us and allowing your blood to be poured out for us. For the salvation of our souls, for the reconciliation and restoration of our world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Don't let anyone take communion by themselves today, please.